What's up, y'all? Welcome back to the Corporate Creative Podcast. If you are new to this, welcome to the show. And if you're true to this, then welcome back. It is always a pleasure. This is the last episode of 2022. um, And I am just as excited about this one as I was the very first one back in January. This conversation was very fun, super uh, informative, and also a really cool opportunity for me to nerd out about topics that I'm passionate about. So in the same vein of our creative conversation from last week, we're looking at it through the lens of education specifically. So I invited my friend Zach, who is currently pursuing his doctoral degree at Xavier University for Educational Leadership and also a huge social social justice advocate for education. Um, he's had some experience in the classroom and in nonprofits and in social work. And so this conversation was just so insightful. Um, and I hope that you all take away some interesting tidbits as it relates to education, the development of youth and the importance of intersectionality in education. And if you don't know what that means, you'll find out in this episode. And before you leave the app, don't forget to rate the show five stars and leave a review and then go to Instagram and follow me at corporate creative pod. Lastly, I just want to wish everybody a happy new year. Y'all be safe, be healthy, and I will see you guys in 2023. You're listening to the Corporate Creative Podcast, where we're talking about becoming the brand and the business. Whether you're looking to advance your career or grow in entrepreneurship, you're absolutely in the right place. I'm your host, Jade I. Hendrick, and I talk with professionals who drop the gems you need to create the life you desire. So let's get into it, shall we? All right, so welcome to the show, Zach. Thank you, thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Thank you for being here. I'm really excited. Um, This is an interesting conversation. I think it'll be just because we don't really do a lot of creative conversations on on this show, more so career and business focused, but I think you have a lot of insight that you'll be able to give. So I usually just kick it off asking guests who you are and what you do. Okay. Um, So hopefully that's a simple question. Um, (laughs) Zach Williams, I'm from Louisiana um, and I'm living back in Louisiana now. Graduate of Fisk University with a double major in English and sociology. Got my master's in arts and teaching from Relay Graduate School of Education current doctoral student with Xavier University of Louisiana for educational leadership, Um, currently working in education nonprofit. For the last five years before doing this nonprofit education work, I was a classroom teacher. Okay. Talk us through a little bit of it, because I know when we talked, you said, you know, what your original thought you were, you know, what your original plan for after graduation slightly changed once you actually got into the job search world and, and trying to figure out, you know, what that looks like. Gotcha. So it it wasn't um if if we're thinking of the the changes that happened, um, it feels like it was a slight change, but like the the nature of the work itself is is just so so different. Um, mm-hmm. although it's like more directly addressing what I set out to do. Um, because what I what I initially wanted to do was be in social work and I wanted to work with at risk youth and stuff like that. And I had those the inspiration behind that as like growing up and seeing in middle school and high school, um, a lot of my friends and stuff like that that you know needed a counselor or needed someone to be on their behalf because their parents weren't doing, you know, whatever they need to do. Um, and just providing resources and things like that. So I set out to do that focusing again on like the the fact that one of my um, degrees from undergrad was sociology. And so focusing on going into social work, I started with adult protective services because uh, child protective services was requiring like you had, you know, a couple of years of um, uh, direct work with youth and stuff like that. And I just, I hadn't had that. So um, just getting my foot in the door with social work and social services and stuff like that with adult protective services, I'm realizing that the process is very much the same in dealing with adult protective services as it is with uh, child protective services in that we are um, taking reports and um, you know things like that for abuse, neglect, um, you know, sexual assault, all those different things. And I'm also recognizing that the procedures that are in place in the state systems that are operating um, these programs in order to uh, provide assistance or to 
get people out of situations, they have so many parameters to them that kind of feels like we're running in circles. And it kind of feels like we're not actually helping to the best of our ability, or there's just so much red tape around, you know, just getting somebody immediate help when it's just like, this could be life or death. Um, and even like when we report certain things to police, because like, you know, if we can't do something about it in the immediate, the police are supposed to, of course, do something about it in that immediate space. But they're just like, well, did you file a report with the Adult Protective Services? And then it's just like, why is nobody doing anything? So right. I was like, I, I was getting burnt out really quick because I was taking work home with me and stressing out over the fact that like, I'm not helping people like I wanted to. And so I already wasn't dealing directly with my demographic that I wanted to help, which was the youth. Um, so I was just like, you know, what can I do? And I reached out to one of my one of my frat brothers, um, and he got me an interview with the school that he was working for, and and you know I I decided to make that transition at that point because education, what I saw it as, and my recollection of it from when I was in school, uh, K through twelve, is that like this is where, you know, I developed the most. This is where mm-hmm. I got the most access. This is where. Like I got my love for reading and poetry and this is where, you know, I met all my friends and like there's so many things that happen in education to where I felt like you could be so much more hands on in the lives of of people and help them to make sure that certain mistakes don't happen for them or you can guide them through those mistakes or you can like, um, you know, be be that that guiding factor to make sure that people are set by the time they get to adulthood. And so that's what I said to do was to be more proactive and not reactive um, for, you know, serving the community, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, he got me an interview. I I did well enough in the interview. I got I got uh, the job teaching uh, financial literacy um, to middle schoolers, which is like. It's it's a whole nother set of just like, am I really doing what I need to be doing for for this demographic? But um, that's that's where I got my start in education. so for the two years I taught at, at that same school um, and I was teaching financial literacy in those two years, the second year uh, they were like, hey, it's great that you've been here teaching with us, but we need certified teachers. So here's some, some programs and stuff like that. And we need you to actually, you know, do one if you want to continue teaching. And I was just like, well, you know, I started, I want to do it with fidelity. And so like, yes, let me go get certified. Let me go get um, this, this next step or whatever. And so that's, that's when I um, enrolled in Relay, Graduate School of Education for my master's in arts and teaching. And I was learning more and more about the field of education to where I realized that teaching also wasn't what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Like I was learning so many different like tools that teachers have and so many things that teachers can do in a classroom to make sure that knowledge is like adequately uh, gained and like relationships are built and so many different things, but all the things that I was learning on, uh, you know, how to do those things and how to be most effective in a classroom on my day to day, when I'm not in class, like as a student and I'm being a teacher and I'm realizing the the system itself that we tend to work in and, and so on and so forth. It's just like, y'all are fighting directly against what I'm learning in class on how to actually be effective here. Mm. So you know, I thought like, okay, maybe it's just a school I'm in. Maybe I need to, to get grounded somewhere else. Maybe I need to um, apply these things that I'm learning in places that I actually agree more so with the mission of, you know, the organization. So after two years of teaching at that, that first school and um, going into my second year with Relay and everything like that, I actually moved back to Louisiana. Um, I started working at schools out here and I was seeing a lot of the same things and in some cases much worse, um, which, you know, we can dive into eventually, but um, seeing some of those things at a much worse level than I thought possible. um, And it further pushed me into, I need to do something else, but I don't want to leave education. Like, I still believe that education is is the, the grand equalizer, like it gives so much access or it can do so. And it can challenge the status quo and the things that are hurting us um, across the board in like American society, I'll say. Um, so, you know, while living down here, I, essentially I taught for another three years before I was just like, all right, 
year year five of teaching is my last year. I need to do something different or I'm, I'm going to lose my mind. It's, it's just not going to work. So um, I took a leap of faith because in the, in the last two years of teaching, I had applied to like 200 different spaces, 200 different education related spaces, some that were also related to social work, some that were just like nonprofit places and, and things like that. And, you know, at most, like I got like five interviews out of 200. But this was all in the same realm of like, you know, I'm gonna keep working until something comes up. And that's not, it's not how life works, really. That's not how God <laughs> works. It's like, God's like, no, if you really want to leave, like you got to actually leave. I'm not going to open these doors for you if you sit in here one foot in, in this other house. So that's, that's essentially what I did. Um, the school year ended. And this is the the school year of 2020, 2021, when we're full in full on pandemic mode. And I'm seeing, you know, how unprepared we are in education for just anything, really anything wide scale and like all of education falls apart in America. So that, again, was just like another factor to just like I need to do something different, something that is much more responsive in times like these and just in general, we we need to be doing better. I need to be doing better. And and being angry at my day to day is not is not serving me. So uh, end of the school year, I quit and, you know, again, casted the net again, um, ended up getting a job at LSU and working in their online education department and like helping with enrollment, you know, and learning that, you know, again, these systems, not a fan of because it, it showed me real quick when you're working in, in enrollment and recruitment, it's a business. It's school is also a business and they they treat students like um dollar signs really and so i was just like i hate this too like i hate <laughs> i hate k through 12 i hate higher education like what's happening right now like i thought that this is where i wanted to be and what i wanted to do um and so like maybe in the second month i was like i'm, I'm gonna start applying to jobs again because on top of that i also took a pay cut um just so i can get my foot in the door in higher education and just like something different than K through 12 because K through 12 is very limited unless you're like eventually trying to become like a principal or, or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I again was just, it, it was on a random day where I was scrolling on Instagram and stuff like that. And I saw this nonprofit organization and it said like, oh, we have an opening position for like a program manager and, and stuff like that. And I was just like, I mean, I've already been putting in applications. My resume is up to date again. Like, why not? So I put in the application, got an interview, and got hired and told LSU, like, I'm out. It was, it was fun, but I'm gone. It's very humbling in so many wild ways and still working in K-12 education, but not as a full-time classroom teacher. Um, and not working in administration, um, approaching students from from the outside of the box of a classroom that they exist in and getting to see them for who they are and their personalities and being able to help cultivate them, not just academically, but like, you know, just in so many different ways that that they that they may come to us. Um, and doing the nonprofit work, uh, well, specifically what I'm doing is like a lot of after school programming where we are doing art inclusion, um, CPAR, uh, critical participatory action research and stuff like that. And also, you know, since we got several tier three students and several students who are just like dealing with mental health things and identity things and like, you know, administering mental health first aid for students. And it's just like, it's so, this is the, the part of the work that I felt was the most necessary that I couldn't provide with fidelity as a classroom teacher, because at the end of the day, like I still need to deliver these nuggets of, of you know, wisdom, academic knowledge, whatever the case may be, and everything else is like secondary too. Although I got to like simultaneously switch out those hats like constantly. And like, I like now having to wear fewer hats and you know, wear them a little bit longer as I'm working with students. No, that was great. And I feel like there's just a lot of little nuggets that you shared along the way. 
Um, so I kind of want to like backtrack just a little bit because there are some things I'm like, you were talking, I'm like, what? So first thing is, I didn't know that you taught financial literacy as a teacher. Um, so how was that experience given that your background is like the, the, I think psychology and sociology or not financial related at all? Um, just quick little response on how that experience was for you teaching a subject that maybe you hadn't had like a lot of training or uh, formal training in, I should say. And that's that's the thing right there is because um, I feel like it's something that we should be somewhat concerned about in education, but also like I recognize the value in allowing someone who doesn't have a background in something to come in and teach mm-hmm. um, or just not having a background in education, a full background in education and coming in and teach. Because like before uh, getting into education, I took like two or three education classes at Fisk and I was thinking like I want to minor in that. Um, but the, doing a double major was just like, you asking for too much, like, calm down. (laughs) So I didn't end up doing so, but, um, and teaching is always like on the job training as well. So it wasn't like I felt, well, I did feel lost just because they, they give you the tools for teaching so slowly that you realize after like a year in or two years in, like I've been doing this wrong for two years or whatever. And, and they, they don't want to like give you a full culture shock of it when I'm just like, you probably should, because this is insane about how these practices, um, there is definitely a right and wrong way to do all of this stuff. But uh, so like the general aspect of teaching, um, completely new to it and getting on the job training constantly was like, you know, throwing some, throwing a firefighter into fire after giving him the uniform, but like no formal anything. And like, you know, he's going to be like kind of okay just because it's like flame, flame retardant and stuff like that. But like, he yeah. still doesn't know what he's doing. Um, and then like financial literacy, like you said, like I don't have a background in financial literacy. I don't have a background in math. Like I took one math class at, at Fisk because like uh, further, further back, back story, like I got all the way up to AP calculus in high school. And I did that intentionally because I didn't want to take math ever again. <laughs> so having to go back to, um, you know, looking at numbers in a sense of like financial, it was, it was actually good for me just because it's like, I'm an adult now, like I need to know this stuff anyway. And like, I'm teaching myself as I'm teaching students, like I'm, it's it's a situation where I'm two lessons ahead, just so I can teach. And that's like, that's extremely stressful. And I don't think enough of us in education talk about that. Like when we get new subjects to teach, and we're like, all right, I need to read chapter three because we're going to start reading chapter one together. And I don't want to be surprised about whatever, you know, that, that kind of situation. Um, But also the issues that I was recognizing with it is the fact that like financial literacy is extremely important. There are things that were done in my household that I now understand much better. Um, Like my parents opening up a bank account for me, like when I was young, young and just putting money in it here and there and stuff like that so when I was 18 and I can like take take that bank account and actually do something with it like it's, it's established there's money in it like I can rely on it it's, it's my savings and all that kind of stuff and also like helping me build credit by like putting my name on things that I'm obviously not putting payments on or, or dealing with directly like all those things are cool and now I'm understanding it because I'm having to learn it to teach mm-hmm. and the part that I hated about it the most was I was teaching financial literacy to middle school. They are way too far removed from utilizing majority of what you can teach in financial literacy. So just like in my, in my young age at home, they were doing all that bank account stuff and credit stuff, not to my knowledge, because I, I wouldn't have understood it anyway. It, it wouldn't have served me to know what they were doing. And I probably would have gotten on the nerves like, but I got money, like I wanna buy this thing. <laughs> so, but now like, uh, or at that point I was teaching middle schoolers like, hey, this is what interest is. This is what loans are. This is what um, a bank account is. And this is why you should have life insurance. And this, like I'm teaching them everything financial literacy related. And like, for some of them it's hitting them just because they're like overachieving kids and others it's just mm-hmm. like, I'm none of this is relevant to me at all right now. Like, what are you talking about? And I remember I was telling my instructional lead that like, hey, it's, it's not hitting them the way that makes any sense. Like they're failing tests and stuff like that because it's not relevant to them. And so she was like, 
we'll turn it into more of a literacy class, give them more articles about financial literacy, help them with their reading skills. And then it's just like, okay, so this is ELA part two. Like most of them are struggling in that class too. Mm -hmm. And so I get why you would want me to format it that way, but then we create a situation to where they are feeling defeated twice in a day because they're struggling in reading in two classes and probably a third if we're counting social studies, which that school actually didn't necessarily have. They were infusing social studies into their reading class. So the reading class that they did have was trying to read like historical fiction and whatnot. So like, mm -hmm. yeah, school's missing a lot of different things that should be there is, is my pet peeve. Yeah, um, and it's interesting just to hear like educators' perspectives on a lot of this stuff because it's it's interesting because I now that I do have a lot of educator friends that the that the narrative is essentially the same. It's like either you get people like you or I have conversations with people like you who are like there's just so many gaps in the system. And as one person who's passionate about this, there's I'm still lacking the resources I need to be a good resource for other students. Then you have other people who are like we're just so focused on the results of things like the the testing that they do the you know reporting that we have to provide that I can't even do my job of actually being an educator I'm so focused on just prepping them for the next test and then you have the other ones who are in the higher education of those spaces and it's like this is just the business like I don't have any actual social impact that I thought I was going to have when people were pitching me on the idea of becoming an educator or getting into the educational space um, and so it's just interesting to see that because as a person who's passionate about education myself um, the first thing I Ever wanted to be when I, you know, when I was growing up was a teacher and then seeing how my career journey or just my life has, uh, has evolved to a place where I ended up choosing business, but now I'm back educating in a financial literacy capacity, which is why I was excited about what you mentioned. Um, I do see the gaps or I do see opportunities for um, improvement or I do see ways where the system is failing our students, which is kind of sad because they have to become competent, competitive citizens of this country at some in some, you know, in some way, shape or form. And depending on your demographic, your area, all those things can really affect who you ultimately become. And that's a lot of what you mentioned in our intro call. That's a lot of um, kind of what you've mentioned in regards to how your career journey has evolved. Um, and one thing you talked a lot about was that the educational the educational system has a lot of factors that stifle success. So I wanted to know like what your perspective is on some of those factors and, and how it's impacted the way you've been able personally to provide resources for at-risk youth. Okay. Um, so there are so many, so many different things and, and avenues as to why we don't see as much um, success as well as like we feel like a, a stifled in, in general in education. Um, one of the biggest ones, and I'm, I'm pretty sure if you ask any educator, they're gonna say like, it's, it's a top, top three situation, more than likely one or two, is the burnout factor with education. And like a lot of people in different corporate spaces are experiencing burnout just because like, you know, deadlines they're they're trying to do the best that they can they're trying to have that upper mobility and things like that but with education it's like like I said before like we wear so many different hats that the the main hat we're supposed to be wearing and focusing on and like actually just being teacher is leading us to burnout like if I'm also your counselor if I'm also your your big brother or your um your pseudo father or whatever like that which is you know one of the reasons that in certain research and education, they say they're one of many, many reasons that there's like a shortage of black men in education is because of the other fathering. I think that's the phrase that they use in that, mm -hmm. like, um, if we go into the schools with a lot of at-risk youth or impoverished youth and stuff like that, the, the assumption and, and the generality of it, which I don't like to generalize, but, you know, there is an assumption there that a lot of them are coming to the space with, um, no father at home or a lack of interaction with a father at home or male figure or whatever like that. And so they are looking at any man that walked into the room that they're gonna see consistent interactions with as a teacher, now you are my pseudo father. And so I'm like, they're gonna project all that stuff onto you, the fact that they don't have a father at home. And they're also going to like, look, they're already testing boundaries because that's what kids do but they're also looking for you to then set the, the full stability for them at school and at home because they don't have that, that balance at home or whatever. 
Um, so like, that's, that's a stressful thing to want to take on. Like I, I cannot be a father to 30 kids for an hour and then another hour I got 28 kids. And then like out of the course of a day being, being dad to like potentially 80 kids, like that's insane. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the, the factor of like how much work is just required for teaching in, in general. Um, and it's, it's thankless work. It's something that is just like, you, you're not gonna get compensated for. If anything, you get a pat on the back. Um, you get celebrated in a meeting in the morning when everybody's half sleep anyway. Um, it's, it's asking you to do a, a lot of different work in the lesson planning, in the, the, the meetings, going to professional development, going um, to potentially other campuses for different trainings and things like that. If you are part of like a school network or a charter school and things like that, because they're always expanding themselves. Um, it's the, the constant phone calls on your lunch break, the constant phone calls after school to parents and stuff like that on to why a child is failing and, and um, or like, I haven't seen this child in a, in, a, in a few days, like what's going on, is everything okay? Um, and then it's just like the actual teaching itself. Like it's so much of it, it just, it's hitting minute to minute. And it feels like it's it's never never complete, never done, because it, it's not. Essentially, it's not, and it can't be. And we don't have a system in place for it to give us the breaks that we need in order to even follow up on half the things that we're supposed to be doing. Um, so burnout is 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 a huge factor for the the stifling that a lot of us feel because I can't focus on doing anything else if I'm constantly focused on I got to do this thing for work, right? which, you know, I think that's a common thing across corporate, corporate folks. It's just like, if I'm constantly focused on, I got to produce, I got to produce, I got to do this or whatever like that, then producing for myself when you potentially are not getting paid for whatever you're doing for yourself is going to always remain on the back burner. Um, and another factor, I think is just like mandates and, and the things that are being asked of us in education um, that do not gel with essentially who we are or what we believe to be the the right thing or whatever like that um the the requirements of us in education sometimes in that you know this is how you're supposed to 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 deal with the specific situation with a child or something like that and then it feels like anytime you step outside of that there's reprimand there's potential for for you know, losing favor, there's potential for blackballing, there's potential for losing the job, there's, you know, all these different things that makes it just be like, there are nuances to all the relationships that we have with our students. And there's too much black and whiteness to what comes down from administration on us and how we best handle our students, how we best deliver content um, and teach, teach them and everything like that. So I think uh, that's another stifling factor is that the the rules themselves and the, the oppressive system in which we learn and the individualism ideology in school, instead of like the collective learning that should be happening because that's actually what works best. Um, those things further stifle us as teachers, I think. Um, pay. <laughs> they they do not pay us the the way that 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 we deserve for the for the things that we're doing, especially like in a time like now where the the ask is that we risk our lives um, as essential workers and stuff like that. Um, virtual teaching has a, a million and one roadblocks to it that makes it hard to do, and so they were like, since this is this isn't as effective as we'd hope it'd be because it's like a, a temporary thing anyway to, to fit the pandemic. We want to get y'all back in class as soon as possible. Uh, health and, and safety be damned because like this is the only way that we know how this works. And so like we, we, we don't have time to restructure. Like there is no time to restructure this system unless we're willing to completely dismantle it and put it on pause for like a year or two. Um, and of course that wouldn't be feasible. So the... 
getting to that point of like the pay aspect of like we're we're not paid adequately for the amount of work that we have to do and the conditions that we have to work in and a lot of the stuff that we're doing is also coming out of our pockets in order to provide for our students and so you know when it comes to like oh i want to put some money into like maybe an llc or something like that or i want to put some money into um self-publishing a book or something or just you know anything for myself it's like okay but like I know that these three students don't have backpacks. So I got to go buy them backpacks because I, I can't depend on their parents to do it since they've been showing up to school for the last two weeks with all their stuff in their hands, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a, a lot of these different um, random factors that kind of overrides the, the dream of education that I think a lot of people um, are sold when they become teachers the aspect of like, oh, you get to deal with young people in their brightest moments and you get to like cultivate them and and give them all the things that that you wish you had and stuff um, as far as like an adult in their lives that that cares about them and is trying to give them these, um, these things that you never learned in school. But like, since you know it now, like you can give that to, to these young people. And, uh, you know, on top of that, like you get summers off, it's like two, three months where you can just do your own thing. That's not, that's not real either. Like we get maybe a good three weeks to a month legitimately to ourselves. And that's, that's a good amount of time for, for some people. But like, if we're, if we're talking about uh, actually getting the rest that we need from being on go for 10 months out of the year, being able to then ramp ourselves up for whatever, whatever personal things that we wanted to do, or maybe just travel, um, and then we have to like get back into the mindset of work is starting again by like week four. And we're doing like all day PD for a month or two weeks or so, or, you know, just depending on what school you work for. Mm-hmm. Um, so even, even the, the assumed perk of like having that kind of time off and holidays off, it's, it's never enough time if we're talking about then I'm going to focus on me because that doesn't happen. Yeah. It, it's it's interesting and like the more you talk about it, I'm like wow this is it's heavy this is a heavy conversation to have because it's the reality and um one thing you you talked or you mentioned is the whole like collective learning which I want to ask you like specifically what that could look like but um the individual piece of it and then two as you were talking realizing that yes you can have you can have potential impact but it but even the approach to how the education is at least from my perspective on the outside looking in is like you assume that these kids just are in the space to even receive what you're looking to give. You know, you have to think about all their dynamics, their family dynamics, their, you know, where they're coming from, all those different uh, things. I don't know if that's, when we talk about social environments, if that's kind of the the realm of what you were thinking of or how you were framing that, but that's, that's what I think of at least. Um, so I just think it's just an interesting conversation in general, but before we move on, I wanna ask you about the whole individualism versus collective learning and what does collective learning look like then if that was something that we could implement or if the system was implementing um, more intentionally or actively uh, what does that look like versus our current approach to how we how we're educating youth okay um so a lot of this is going to sound like fresh off of uh i read this one book and so like (laughs) whatever um and to some degree so like some of it is because like again I'm I'm a doctoral student right now and a lot of this research and like old old stuff is on top of my mind um and it's also things that I've noticed in general as having gone through a master's program that's in education and dealing with schools directly America of course is is a capitalist nation um and that aspect right there pushes individuality in a way to where like yeah, it's all fine and good that like you can on your own merit earn this, that, and the other, and you don't have to depend on this many people to get there or whatever like that. Your your success can be your own, your failure can be your own. But like that doesn't speak to the nature of how people learn best. The capitalistic individual individualistic aspect and the Eurocentric aspect of like there has to be a winner. And everybody else has to be a loser because you came in second to last place or whatever. Like that does not work for um, education. Education should be more of the Afrocentric ideology of collective learning to where everyone in the classroom has a voice. And if one person is not getting this thing, that means that we all need to take a step back and help that person get there. 
because the collective is what's going to push all of us forward. If anybody is, is lagging behind, that is going to harm the community in some way. We got to think long term about these things and that if this out of out of a class of 100 kids, 10 of them are, are you know, failing or whatever like that. And then that limits where they can be later in life. Those limitations is going to force them into positions of desperation and desperation does a, a million and one things that can be harmful to not just self, but everybody else. So it, it does not serve for us to be okay with there being failures in class, people who lose. Um, I'm, I'm not like a huge advocate for like everybody deserves the trophy, but I'm not okay with not seeing that we have progression for everybody. That doesn't make sense to me. Um, so when, when we're talking about the collective and Afrocentric ideologies around learning, we're talking about the, in a classroom, I should not be seen as a teacher in I am doing what Paulo Freire says, banking knowledge or banking version of education to where I have all of this knowledge and education. You as my student, you have nothing. I'm going to just dump all of this information into your brain. You're gonna regurgitate it. And that's how I know that you've learned it. And if you are not able to regurgitate it or you're not receiving the information well, then that means you're a bad student. That's not, that doesn't serve anyone. Mm -hmm. We have to have more spaces to where me as a teacher, I'm actually just a facilitator. I'm not talking the whole class. There, there is no aspect of lecturing and stuff like that. I'm introducing a question. I'm providing materials. And you as the students in groups um, or whole, whole group or whatever like that, you are chewing on all that information. You are pondering that question, asking further questions of each other. And I'm just there to guide. And like, if I see you going too far out of bounds, I just knock you back into play. And, and y'all keep going until you come to what the, the critical answers are for, for this overarching question. And we also can't be afraid for that to like take time to get to. Mm -hmm. we, we do all of our unit planning and stuff like that and scope and sequence for the year and stuff. And we're just like, oh, if we don't get here, then like this year's a, a loss or this year's a waste. We have to start looking at you know, outside of some of the more stricter um, subjects like math or whatever, like we have to start looking at these uh, concepts that we're trying to teach children as something that is going to continue to develop and evolve anyway. A lot of these standards that we're supposed to be delivering are supposed to be reciprocal year to year and build on each other anyway. So if it takes them a while to like really digest it, that's better because I wouldn't want to like half do a concept that go into the next year that that concept is going to be built on and they still don't have it because I was trying to meet a deadline. That's not fair to them. Mm -hmm. um, so roundabout ways, like that's, that's kind of how I feel about uh, what the collective should look like and, and how that should be, how that should be done in that the student voice needs to take precedent in the classroom. Um, I, the, the teacher should not be spending if if we're talking about a classroom where it's like 90 minutes or whatever at most 15 minutes should be that teacher speaking on anything the rest of the class period should be the students actively talking about the subject reading out loud um, hearing each other's voices and valuing each other's voices and not just valuing the adult in the room because then that sets them up to to to, to lessen um the strength and power that they have as as people and, and speakers. Um, and they should be spending that time also like doing active work and stuff like that. Like even if the room is dead silent and they are writing or, or they're taking some form of, uh, of applicable hands-on assessment, like that's still better than them just having to sit and listen to me talk. Like, of course, being there to answer their questions and to, you know, point them in the right direction and stuff like that. But the, the days of lecturing, especially for K through 12, like that, that can't be a thing. I think that's great too. Cause even just your point about, you know, 
um, encouraging them or creating an environment where they can think and, and a process for themselves, that's a skill that they'll need throughout their entire life. Like once you get into your, your workspace, you have to collaborate with people that are not just your boss. You have to be able to hear somebody else's idea and either um, disagree with, with fa- you know, with some sort of, or, you know, debate or act- actual, I'm trying to say like a factual response, right? Something like that. Or just be able to understand, receive and process the information that you heard. It might be different from yours accordingly to do the job that you need to do. But the point is, you know, it's not just about like, getting a task and then running with that one thing, there's always going to be shifts and changes. And if we don't teach them how to do that early, it's a, it's another place, it's another space that we're lacking in or another piece that, that they don't really get a grasp of. And then ultimately don't succeed to the capacity that they could, that they could, if they had that skill early on. Um, it kind of reminds me of, you mentioned something I, I took in my notes is uh, you said how we're brought up is ultimately, ultimately what tears us down. And I think that's like, it's so true. And I mean, you, it, you can take that any direction you want to, but that idea that in education where we're supposed to be creating these um, these individuals to be the most you know impactful or purposeful that they can be in their lives, when we don't think about what that looks like for the long term, to back to your point about longevity of things, um, we're missing the mark in a lot of ways. Um, you talk a lot about the Afrocentric approach versus Eurocentric approach, and um, it's actually a really good pivot because I want to talk a little bit about you know, intersectionality in education and what that looks like. I know that's something that you're really passionate about. So can you, first of all, define what that is? And then, you know, what does that look like um, in, the, in the world and realm of education? Mm-hmm. Um, so intersectionality, now, of course, like this won't be a full Merriam-Webster definition for it, but it's, <laughs> it's the recognition, of course, of that, like every single individual person, there are multiple factors to them. Um, multiple identity factors and, and multiple uh, things that, that may mesh together, they may conflict and stuff like that, but there is a connectivity to another person because of the fact that we all have multiple identity factors. Like we, you and I are gonna agree on uh, several things just because we are both black um, or we're both college educated or whatever like that. But there are things that you know I'm probably gonna miss because you're, also, you're a woman and I'm not. And like, I gotta understand like the parts that we intersect are super important and I can't discount what you're saying just because there are parts where we don't intersect mm-hmm. and where we, we don't share an identity um, factor or anything like that. Um, and like, this is also a, a thing when it comes to being in the classroom and, and like recognizing that someone like myself who is college educated, you know, we weren't poor and anything like that growing up, um, working class families and stuff, um, burgeoning middle class and everything. You know, I, I wasn't wanting for much. And I'm now teaching kids who are, you know, also black, um, have aspirations for college. Maybe they had two parents at home. Maybe they didn't. Um, a lot of them are poor. And so like, there are things that I'm connecting with them on just for, on the base level of like, we're all black people in a room. But there are things that I'm also missing because like I didn't have to deal directly with poverty. Mm-hmm. Like that was always something that was like adjacent to me because of friends I had or, you know, the fact that like we are, I, I think, a generation out of poverty because my parents went to the military and the military benefits are just like, they're crazy. Um, so when when I think of intersectionality and I think of uh, how it applies to like teaching and stuff like that is it's the aspect of like I, I need to recognize that yes I can connect with students on on this level or that level but I also have to be aware of the levels where um, I do not connect and leverage the ones where I do so that I can have an understanding of the parts where I don't connect as well um, that's that's the, a large part of the issue that we have in general society to where just like why are why is the black community itself always like at, at each other's throats and stuff like that when it comes to like um, upper class black folks and, and middle class black folks or impoverished black folks or like black men and black women and stuff like that. And, and we keep leaving out the parts where we, where we have that full on connection mm-hmm. so that we can then build our understanding around the parts where we don't. Um, am, I, am I fully answering your question? 
Yeah, it's, that that was great. It's really just like to your point, it's really just about the awareness first of where you connect. Um, so you don't miss the opportunity to show respect at its most basic level. It, that that's how I that's how I kind of take that my little takeaway for the day. Um I think it, and yeah, I think it's it's a it's, it's a consideration thing, being considerate of. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, that's I, I like it. And I think that really applies anywhere. Um, even the examples you gave, it's not even about like me being a teacher versus, you know, and working with students. It's me being a black woman and how I connect with a, a woman that's not black or, you know, we are in the same workspace. That is a mutual connection that we have, or maybe we enjoy some sort of, you know, we have the same hobby or like just finding ways to connect because I, I, I think that's, yeah, I'll just say, I think that, that really is helpful. Um, I was going to ask you, how do we get there? But I really think to your point is about awareness and consideration, like really being intentional about under, like trying to understand those things so you can find a mutual ground. Um, and I feel like that's across the board, whether you're black, white, or, you know, whatever else. Um, so in regards to that, you know, when we talk about like potentially changing the education space or re reimagining the education space or any other, any other institutional space, because I think a lot of these, uh, a lot of things you talk about have parallels in all, in all the industries, even some things you mentioned, I could see that happening in the corporate space. And I know people in nonprofit, even you, you know, some of those, you see a lot of the overlap, um, no matter what institu institutional space you're in. Um, so when we, if we could reimagine this world of education, just because that's, you know, where a lot of your experience and background is, you know, what does that mean for you? What does reconstructing the narrative or reimagining that space look like? So, and like that, it's, there are so many aspects and tiered levels to, to that question. Mm -hmm. Just like, I think there's like so many tiers that how do we just change anything and everything? Like, um, I'm a fan of people who are anarchists, anarchists and like burn everything down. Like, <laughs> I'm, I feel you, like I'm with you, but like also, <laughs> um, and I'm also a fan of people who are just like, well, let me work from the inside of it. Like, also feel you, I get it. Like how else can we do this thing unless we have representation here and so on and so forth. Um, I also just understand people who are just like, it, it doesn't matter what we do. I understand those people, like I get it. Like it, it everything just seems and feels very tiresome. Mm -hmm. But um, if we are talking about changing that and especially changing that in like education spaces um, so that we can be more considerate of the intersectionality of, of human beings and how do we best serve students and get rid of the the damaging oppressive nature of school and eurocentric ideologies around education and capitalism being so deeply entrenched in education and like essentially like slave mentalities in education how do we get rid of all those things um it starts with the general practices that we have like i mentioned before i can't be the 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 teacher in a classroom that lectures a whole period, because then that, that then pushes the idea of I am now your master overseer, whatever, and I'm an authority just because of the position I'm in. I should only be seen as an authority because I know what you are trying to learn. Mm -hmm. We we want to change the 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 approach to education, of course, to where like again we want children to have more of a voice in the classroom because then that starts changing the aspect of um, how we view each other in that a child can look at me and say, oh, that's an adult. And I don't understand them because they're an adult or they don't understand me because they're, they're grown now and like they forgot what it's like to be a child or whatever the case may be. And like they're approaching a lot of situations like that. Um, but it's just like, oh no, I, I definitely remember. And that's why I'm like, please don't do that. Cause like it, I'm, I'm grown now. I can tell you from experience, like this doesn't work, but um, still, I have to, again, leverage other parts that we can very readily and directly identify with. Um, how else do we do we change so that intersectionality is a more apparent thing in classrooms? Is the representation in education for, uh, you know, different folks. White women are like the largest number in education um, and then it's followed up by like white men, I believe, if my numbers are right from the last time I looked. And again, we don't have as many um, Black educators, but that's also a, a, a situation of like, we don't have a lot of push for that in our community either. There's a lot of HBCUs that are churning out doctors, lawyers, 
biologists and stuff like that because they're they're pushing those programs on our campus. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of HBCUs that are also losing their education department. And so if there's no education department on that campus, and this is the leading, these are the leading schools that are pushing out Black professionals, then like the, the push to get more of us into HBCUs and have that representation is also like not serving all the different areas that we can be. Um, and There has to be, of course, an intersectionality and, and a diversification of the actual materials that we're teaching with. Um, the canon, the, the holy canon of white literature, for example, is just like, that, that needs to shift in general. Um, I'm not saying like these books are not good. They're just not the only books that exist. And they're not the only books that have the, the themes that are relevant and important for education. Um, they have to we have to present a wider range of stories that children can identify with. There, there is no world where I imagine a classroom full of black and brown students are gonna identify with uh, where the red fern grows or the hatchet as much as they can identify with children of blood and bone. Like there, there's not a world where that exists in education. Like the amount of uh, black and brown students is increasing in America so where it's like it's like uh, almost a full 50 to 51 percent are non-white students in America at the moment, but there's like a two percent uh, population of black men in education. So like we're we're looking at a situation to where you may never ever have a black educator as a as a black student, and then on top of that, you are forced to read just Shakespeare, forced to read just Ernest Hemingway, forced to read and, and or identify math as something that is not accessible to your community because they don't teach where a lot of math comes from. And a, a lot of the math that we utilize today is, is not from some white man. Hmm. So like there's, there's a, a lack of connectivity to um, non-Eurocentric, there's a lack of con- connectivity to non-capitalistic there's a lack of connectivity to everything um, that our students are coming to us from. And that is, that is the biggest problem. Like, it's not, it's not just who's in the room. It's also what's being taught. It's also the practices. It's like, there's, that's why I say there's tears to this. Um, and like, the, it requires a revamp and overhaul on, on the general idea of how we do education. And like, some of that work is being done, of course, there are, nonprofit organizations that work actively to, to have more responsive teaching, culturally responsive, which is the, the term that they use. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are small scale attempts by like whole school districts to do this one thing or whatever, but then they like fall back on the laurels and they say like, well, we did that one thing, so everything else is fine. But you know, of course that's not the case. Um, and even when we look at something like, you know, the buzzword of critical race theory or whatever like that, like that's just considering, you know, there are more than one, more, there's more than one side to the story in general. Mm-hmm. And if we're ignoring it just because it's uncomfortable, then like, that is why we have as many problems as we do have. Um, it just creates more uncomfortable and dangerous situations, honestly, when, when you don't consider the fact that multiple narratives are happening at one time. Yeah. Your hero might be my villain. And that's just what it is. That's real. Man, okay. This conversation, I'm like, it's so good. It's so heavy, but it's so good. <laughs> um, so the last thing I want to talk about, really, just because we've talk, talked a lot about education, we talked about a lot of a lot about your um, development into becoming the educator and leader that you are in the space that you're in. Um, so I want to talk talk a little bit about like the the art side of things because it's something that you're really passionate about. Something that um, I just remember even you at Fist with your poetry and you know all the things like that. So uh, on a fun to end on a fun note, uh, you know, talk a little bit about some of your your projects and the things that you're doing outside of all the the great work that you're doing inside of work. Gotcha. So uh, the thing that I value right now about my workspace before I get into like what I'm doing personally is, is yeah. the fact that like 
now I'm finally at a with an organization and in position to where the everybody that I work with values art and the inclusion of social emotional learning and like how do we express ourselves and like there are more avenues to learning than this very static and strict classroom structure and mm -hmm. so i'm working with people who are also poets also visual artists also have published different works and have done voiceover uh things with people and and different spaces and like they understand and they get the need for creativity and what that can do, especially for a young person. They understand the fact that art is what is keeping a good amount of people alive. There, there are some, some people who, who just would not be here if it wasn't for the outlet that we have with, with art. Mm -hmm. um, in my lowest moments, and you know, even sometimes with like the imposter syndrome and sometimes with the, you know, oh, I'm not doing this to the level that I, I, I wanna do it at and that brings me down. But in my lowest, lowest moments, I can always go back to this one thing moves my spirit. It might not pay me, but it moves my spirit. And that's like, I need that more than I need the money sometimes. And so having that, that space now is allowing me to jump back into uh, the things that I'm passionate about and my first love in poetry, which is something that I didn't fully invest in to the way that I think, you know, most people assume I did. And that's because like, you know, I do come from a very strict background of like military parents and sustainability and like get the job, go, go to school, all that kind of stuff so that you can sustain your living and being an artist, like that's cool and all, but like it's, they don't consider it a need. And it's also just like, we, you'll be struggling and like we don't want that for you and like it they scared me away from the idea of fully investing in my art the way that I I should have with how much I do love and care about care about it um and so again now I'm in a space where everybody is you know still a professional out of the eight people I work with six of them already have their doctorates and the other two are like in the dissertation phase of it of getting one and they're they're doing all these things but also doing all the creative stuff I just mentioned mm -hmm. and it's just like okay so I could have been doing this, this this whole time or if I wasn't feeling so stifled with with um you know the the work of teaching and having all that burnout like I could have been you know investing in education differently and also doing this art thing as well but okay all that beyond beyond the point, um, I am getting back into into writing more, uh, writing more poetry, and every now and then presenting a piece that I've written in like a, a physical space if it's like, you know, the the safety around it right now in the pandemic is is feasible or in virtual spaces and things like that. Um, I am working on self publishing, um, a solo book of work. Because I've been recently, not recently, recently, but like within the last few years, I was published in an anthology of it was all poems that were dedicated to Black women from Black men. Um, the intention behind it was to also have that be introduced in the classroom, like the perception mm -hmm. of what love looks like from uh, one part of our culture to another part of our culture being completely absent in so many spaces. If we put this in a classroom, we, we can we can teach poetry, we can teach things, we can teach creative writing, but we can also teach like, no, yeah. black men actually do love black women. But again, neither here nor there. Um, <laughs> so, yes, I'm, I'm working on compiling a set of poems that that speak to me the most. And I'm trying to approach it as like this is this is going to be my Illmatic. This is going to be my debut album kind of thing for this this book of poetry. Um, and I'm also, I've, I've been having desires to also write like short stories. Um, there are narratives, like I said, like the, the holy white canon. I wanna disrupt that as much as possible. So as many different narratives that I can put together, whether it's like in the form of a comic book because I'm a huge comic book nerd, or if it's just like short stories or something like that, they, that can also be compiled in some form of anthology. Um, or I do have this, or several ideas actually towards like screenplays and um, scripts for for short films and things like that. Like those those things are what is moving me outside of 
you know, being active at work and also being an active doctoral student, which is taking up most of the time. So my academic writing is like punching me in the gut half the time because I'm trying to like put in the flowery words and all that kind of stuff. And then I get notes back talking about like, you're too conversational here. And I'm just like, ah, that's right. This, this is not the space. <laughs> so yeah, but that's that's where I'm going creativity, creatively yeah, right now is uh, going back into investing in my poetry and you know, making sure that I'm not scared to, to do it because it's, it's another situation of like, we, we grow up thinking our voices are minuscule. They don't have an impact. They don't have a ripple effect and things like that. And that's what I felt for like a very long time. And so like when, when you interacted with me in college or you came to a show where, where I was hosting or, or presenting a poem or whatever the case may be, that's literally like the first time that like I'm speaking and feeling comfortable doing so in front of people my peers no less like I had been in spaces before in high school where like I could do those things but it always hit me in a way to where like okay I need to shut up now like this this platform is limited and I'm about to I'm about to run off of it mm-hmm. um so being in position now creatively to to not just establish the platform but recognize that it is as big as it needs to be for either just myself or as many people as I can fit onto it. And we're all going to lift each other up. And so creative writing is, is that aspect for me at the, at the current moment. I love it. That was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> that was so good. Um, and it, and just to wrap it up, cause I don't even want to ruin what you just, that was a great way to end, but um, that is made me think back to when we talked about reimagining education and changing the narrative, you know, making sure that the arts are, are weaved into everything that we're doing, because it is so important for expression, for, you know, developing our voices, um, for idea sharing, for receptivity of those ideas um, is so important. And, I, and it, even just seeing like funding being taken away from art specifically, you see that there's a, a huge opportunity missing there for us to be able to do some of the things that we've talked about in today's conversation. So I don't want to ruin whatever you just said, what you exactly what you just said, um, but I, I really appreciate what you did say. And so before we get into the final four, can you just share how people can connect with you or find you on the internet or social media? Um, so I, I'm not the best on the internet. Um, <laughs> But I do, I do have the IGs. Um, I just recently changed the name of it to Dr. Indigo. So doctor, as it is spelled, dot I-N-D-I-G-E-A-U-X, because I'm from Louisiana and I'm extra like that. Um, I, I, again, I work for Humanities Amped. Um, so online, humanitiesamped.org. Or you can also find Humanities Amped on Instagram. Uh, just, I want to say it's Humanities Amped BR, because we're in Baton Rouge. Um, I encourage y'all to, to check out that website just because one of the major factors to where it's just like, I need to get this job and I need to work with these people is because they have millions of research that they are not hiding behind the paywall either. The things that we're doing with students is not being uh, hoarded by just this organization. Everything that you can find on the website is, is stuff to how you can revamp your classrooms, how you can facilitate democratic conversations with young people, how you can introduce uh, critical participatory action and research and stuff like that. It, there are so many resources that, that is available. Like I encourage anybody and everybody to check out the website itself. <laughs> I'll be sure to link all of those in the show notes as well. Um, but I did, I highly do recommend that you guys check out Humanities and, and Zach's page because I'm sure he'll, hopefully he'll be sharing more poetry um, but he does the information he does share when he does decide to share it. It's always cool. So um, I'll leave all of Zach's uh, links in the show notes. And then if you do have a link to the poetry or the anthology that you contributed to, I would like to include that as well. And I'll get that from you later, I guess. Um, so without further ado, are you ready for the final four? Yes, go ahead. Hit me. All right. So in one word or sentence, how would you describe your career journey? Tumultuous. All right. What does being a creative mean to you? To give life in the absence of. I like that. 
if you had the opportunity to get a message across to a large group of people in any capacity, what would your message be? <laughs> Do better. <laughs> <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> and then finally, what's a resource that you recommend to my audience to help them grow either personally or professionally? Oh, Jesus. Um, resources. So I, re I recently told friends that um, if I had a library card, I would be a national threat to security. <laughs> and so that's what I'm going to say. Please go get a library card um, because I, I'm, a, I'm a person that buys books and stuff like that. But look, if the, the knowledge is, is more accessible than we think. So a library card is the resource that I suggest. I love it. And I'm just going to add here that if you are into ebooks or whatever, a lot of public libraries have an app called Libby and I use that too for when I don't want to buy books and you can rent books, uh, ebooks or audiobooks on there for free with a library card. So um, get your library card and get the Libby app and uh, get educated. <laughs> <laughs> Zach, thank you so much for being here today. This was an amazing conversation and I really appreciate your time. Of course, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, be sure to share, subscribe, and if you're on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star review. Also, join the tribe and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Corporate Creative Pod. I'm here every Monday, so I'll see you guys next week. Love and light.